Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Infrastructure. It's an essential part of our civilized lifestyle and of our economy. Think about it. We're talking about water, smartphones, toilets, and intermittent electricity supply. We can't do without it. The ownership and control of, of that infrastructure is a controversial issue. On the one hand, with smartphones, everyone's very comfortable that the private sector has complete control and ownership of it. Toll roads, that's another story. I am firmly of the belief that a carefully managed private investment, which means ownership, in the infrastructure space is the right thing to do. It's an essential part of getting the delivery right. And I think that what we're seeing globally is an increasing awareness of that and an increasing understanding of the fact that it is a good investment. I've been involved in this space as was introduced for quite some time now. I started the, the Ideas Fund at Old Mutual in 1998-99 and I formed the African Infrastructure Investment Management Group in a joint venture with Macquarie in the year 2000. When I say private investment in infrastructure is a vital part of the delivery mechanism, I say it for two reasons. The first reason is that government, our government in particular, cannot afford to be the sole deliverer of infrastructure in our economy. And the second reason is that our government, like governments all over the world, is actually really poor at delivering and maintaining infrastructure projects. If you think about our economy, we're sitting with a very narrow tax base and an anemic growth rate. It's going to be tough to generate money out of that going forward. We're sitting with a Budget deficit of around about 3.7%, Mexico 4.3, Colombia 2.1. That's not that bad, actually. It's not that dramatic. But it's on the upper level of where I think most economies and most governments feel comfortable. But what we do have is a problem on the spending side. 36% of the government spending go, goes to employment costs. Around about 69% of the government's spending goes into what we think of in South Africa as essential services, education, health, social security, defense, and by the way, paying off some of the debt that it owes. So we don't have a huge amount of leeway either in, in cutting back costs. We're sitting with what is really rather a toxic mix, actually, where we've got huge expense demands coming from our parastatal enterprises like Eskom, uh, like SABC, like SAA, like the post office. We're sitting with a improbable ability to fund it other than what we're doing. And we're sitting with those employment costs rising at about, about 12% per year, which they've done for the last eight years. And where is that going to impact? It's going to impact on the government's ability to spend money on infrastructure. 
that means it really does need to get the private sector involved. It's a poor deliverer of infrastructure. I mean, it's not unique, but we've got some pretty stark examples in South Africa. Madupi started in 2007, projected to cost 70 billion rand, projected to be delivering electricity in 2010. Well, we all know where we are as far as its delivery of electricity is, but what we don't all know is that it's going to cost us more than 105 billion rand, 70 to 105 billion rand. That's a huge increase, and it doesn't take a cost, it doesn't take account of any of the financing costs that have arisen during that delay period. That poor um, delivery ability out of government comes from the fact, actually, that it really is incredibly uncommercial in the way it looks at delivering things. We, have, we had a, a classic example of this when, when we were involved. In about 2003, we were appointed as the supplier of the Department of Education building to the government. We'd been through a, a transparent tender process with them, and we'd come out the winners of that transparent tender process through our funds. It took us six years from that point of having been agreed that we were going to be the supplier till we were, man were able to get onto the site and put a pick in the ground. And it wasn't because we weren't interested. We had the cash. We were fascinated by the opportunity. But we couldn't get an efficient relationship going with government as our counterpart in negotiating that outcome. There's another one, another interesting experience that I had. Also, again, at around about that time, uh, uh, I was involved with the KwaZulu-Natal Dubi Trade Port people. These are the guys that were promoting the idea of moving the Durban airport from where it was in Durban, downtown virtually, as you all remember, uh, to where it is now near La Mercy. Now, I mean, the merits of that have been debated extensively. I, I was for it at the time, and I still am for various reasons. It didn't matter. They had engaged with us as the private sector to help provide this airport. And they asked me to go to Parliament to not to promote the idea, they were quite comfortable promoting the idea, but just to tell everyone in Parliament that, that we were interested in funding it so that there wasn't going to be a capital gap there. We met Alec Irwin in the corridor. And Alec happened to be one of the guys who was responsible for that part, that leg of, of, of government as a minister. And I don't think I've ever face such a rude tirade from anyone. I won't go through <laughs> all the rude part of it, but I'll try and tell you what his essential arguments were. His essential arguments were, look, as government, we've got the budget and the capability to procure the skills. So we can get anyone we want in this economy to come and help us build this airport. Not only that, but as government with our balance sheet, we can procure, procure capital cheaper than anyone else can. We're a low-risk entity. Okay, the next part of his argument is, so we should be doing this. And that's rubbish. Because there isn't a single government that's been able to do all of these projects on budget and on time. And so you can see there's a gap between what 
the public policymakers often see themselves as and their commercial uh, understanding of what the world looks like and the private sector's understanding and commercial and, uh, 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 grip, grip on the world and how they're able to, to deliver uh, projects. So they need us. Oh yes, there's a third reason, corruption. Whenever the private sector is involved in these processes, by and large, it's a transparent process. Government doesn't give you that level of transparency into the process. So it's quite easy, and we're seeing it a lot, for them to skim off the top. Infrastructure, so again, I come back to my point that, uh, and the summation of that point is that actually the private sector is an important part of that delivery mechanism. It's not the sole part. There is a lot of stuff that the private sector couldn't and shouldn't be involved in and government needs to be. So anyone who says, look, we need to privatize everything is, is smoking something. That's not true. But we do need to have a public policy framework and will have, because we have to have it, a public policy framework that embraces private involvement. From an institutional point of view, infrastructure equity assets are wonderful investments. Absolutely wonderful investments. Firstly, they generate a really decent return, real return. Our experience, and it goes over now 15 years, and it has been solid in that, is that we're able to comfortably beat our hurdle uh, return of CPI plus 7, in other words, a real return. And our track record in our, in our funds has been that we've been able to deliver a, a re investment return of 11% above the inflation rate. And it's been year in and year out for the last 15 years and very steady. So they're great investments from a return point of view. But there are other features that make them awesome investments for long-term investors. The first one is that they're essential services. If you think about it, You've got to carry on drinking. You've got to carry on going to the toilet. You've got to carry on driving on roads. You've got to carry on using your smartphone. So what happens with that is, or what happens with those assets is they tend to not be volatile in the economy. Uh, this is not working. Anyone help me here? So can anyone help me get a slide up here? Uh, okay, thanks. There we go. No, that's the one, one too many. Let's go back one. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, okay, fine. Sorry. They, they're great. They are, I'll come back to that slide. Um, they, they, they are great long-term investments. Um, people need to carry on using them. We find, and the slide I did want to show you was a slide that of, of one of our toll road um, uh, one of our torrids and its revenue. And you can see how, notwithstanding things that have gone on in this economy, and notwithstanding the fact that annually, every single year, there are toll increases that happen, the, with taking out the seasonality, that, that revenue stream has risen very, very steadily and consistently over the 10 years that we've owned that asset, 15 years actually, now that we've owned that asset. So they, they, because they're essential services, they tend, and generally speaking, that's true of most infrastructure assets, they tend to carry on doing a, delivering a steady, steady outcome. Um, the 
other really interesting part about these sorts of assets is they're generally considered by governments to be strategic assets. So governments are very, very loath to sell them outright to the private sector. What they do is they deliver them to the private sector on limited time horizon concessions, what they call concessions. These are typically 25 or 30 year long concessions. And they're 25 or 30 years long because the capital costs are so high that you need that length of time to start to deliver the sort of return that's expected by the commercial private sector. And so what we have are assets that, in terms of their investment time horizon and duration, are perfectly suited to funds that have long-term liabilities. They're wonderful assets for pension funds. They're risky assets, but they're low-risk assets. Risk is good. Actually, risk gives you a higher return, provided you can manage it, identify it first, and manage it properly. Can we just go to the next slide? So the kind of thing that we're seeing here, and what this slide illustrates, is the type of um, risk profile and investment profile that we generally see in our infrastructure assets. And what I'm trying to illustrate here is, sorry, you can go back. Which? This one. Okay, the type of investment profile that we tend to see out of our infrastructure assets, and it's very typical, that as you go through time, the risk starts to move out of the asset. And the risk tends to be highest in the early stages, and I want to come back to, to talk about what, what that means for these sorts of assets. But what then ends up happening is that not only do you start to get the sort of yield, um, high yield that I'll, that I'll talk a little bit about, but you also start to get some capital benefit out of it. Um, the other interesting sort of more sort of anecdotal part about this risk uh, that I'd like to share with you is that we, and, and again a little bit of background, from our platform we're the biggest owner of renewable energy equity in, in, in this country. So we're involved in just around about a third of all of the projects, both in number and in megawatts. And we've contributed of all of the equity, around about 10% of all of the equity. So we're a big player in this. We're a controlling shareholder. In, uh, and, and, and the point I want to make or try and illustrate here is that actually the risk dissipates over the age of the asset, but is quite high, and we've identified it, quite high during the construction phase of, 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 of a lot of these assets, particularly in the renewable energy. That's where, where they are pregnant with most of the risk. We've got an ownership, a, a large ownership stake in one of the largest wind farms in this country, and it's actually one of the largest wind farms in the world. It's 130 megawatts. And it's located near a town called Cookhouse, which is near Port Elizabeth. It's a big wind farm. We have been involved in that uh, investment since, since prior to the time that we had to actually make an, an equity commitment. We were involved in the structuring of the, of the whole financial package that went along with it. The unfortunate part about that was, or maybe it's the fortunate part about that was, as it turns out, our supplier and our builder of that was an Indian company called Susla. As we signed the financial package documents, in other words, just prior to going to construction, Suzlon went into the Indian equivalent of Chapter 11 bankruptcy. 
That looked like it was going to be a disaster for us. It looked like it was going to be a disaster for a couple of reasons. Firstly, we needed to get the equipment onto, into the country, and we did that. We negotiated an unusual arrangement with them where they had to supply us all of the equipment before we paid them a cent. But we also needed to manage the whole engineering phase of that, and I'll try and explain to you why that's important. If we had continued to pay Sislon as we would have normally paid them and allowed them because they don't do the physical work to pay the subcontractors, they may never have paid them. And we may have found ourselves at a point in time, at the very least, where we had Suzlon with its money and our subcontractors with no money and unwilling to work and a project coming to a halt. The other thing that we needed to be very concerned about was that Suzlon didn't cut the corners in terms of quality just because it was cash poor. In our platform, we were able to manage, we identified that risk, but we were able to manage that risk because we've got guys in there who understand how to supervise a construction program like that. So we wheeled those guys into the company. We controlled the cash payments to the subcontractors and not via Sizzler. We brought in our quality controlling people into that to make sure that we had the right quality wind farm built for us. And I am absolutely confident that that project is now going to turn out to be one of our best wind farm investments that we have. It's up and running, and it has been running now for nine months and delivering electricity. It, it didn't cost us a cent more than it should have. In fact, we made a little bit of extra money out of the damages that program that we, sh that, that, that we had with them. And it only took us three months more than our best guess about, how to, uh, about the length of time to build it, which was three months less than it should have taken. So again, I come back to my point. It's all about identifying and managing the risks. And if you can do that, then you're into a really good low-risk type of investment. These investments are very low correlation investments. Again, and I'm not talking about how one views them as an institution, an investor. What I'm showing you here is a slide that on the very left-hand side, the black bar, is an index comprising listed infrastructure assets. So we're talking about the likes of British, Air, British Airports Authority, uh, Scottish Power, United Utilities. They're all listed. They're all infrastructure assets, all infrastructure heavy assets. And what we've done here is we've taken that and correlated it against the Dow Jones stock X. But we've correlated a whole lot of other indices, sort of more conventional asset indices. And you can see comfortably, comfortably, the infrastructure index of listed shares is at the low end of the correlation curve. Low correlation masses. We took the same index and the same process and plotted its, the standard deviations of those listed infrastructure asset returns compared to other indices against the, the, the broad Dow Jones. And you can see again, these indices show, these, these assets show, as assets, a much lower volatility in pricing for good obvious reasons, but they show a lower volatility in pricing. So they tend to be both great from, a diver, from, a, from an investment point of view, pure investment point of view, and from a portfolio diversification point of view. I want to talk about another reason why I think these assets are awesome assets. Um, and 
we as an asset management business think this way. From a social point of view, they deliver a great outcome. Our toll road assets, each company generated more than 4,000 temporary jobs in the course of its construction. Each toll road company created more than 300 permanent jobs. Each toll road company in the 15 years that we've been owners of them has delivered more than 100 million rands into previously disadvantaged businesses. These are the guys that mow the verges, that look after the, the fences, that do that sort of work at least. And we've promoted through our, through our targets black economic empowerment in the, in the construction companies that deliver construction projects to us on those roads. That cookhouse project, that cookhouse project is going to deliver to that cookhouse community on its own more than 100 million rand over the life of that project into the community trust. So they're awesome social responsibility investment programs for us. And we're very, very passionate to make sure. It, the, our involvement in, those, in, in these sorts of assets enables us to make sure that environmentally sound practices are followed by, by the development of those projects. And we're passionate about that. The allocation, and I think this is the part of the emerging thought that I wanted to, to, to talk about a little bit. The allocation of money from contractual savings funds, particularly pension funds, to infrastructure is small at the moment, but it is growing. Tiles Watson has done a couple of surveys during the course of 2014, and I'm sure lots of you work for Tiles Watson, so you've, I'm sure you've read all of those surveys. Uh, perhaps most of you have read all of those surveys, but I just want to highlight a couple of points. What Tiles Watson have shown is that the allocation from pension funds globally to alternative assets has grown from about 5% in 2000 to about 18% now. The allocation to infrastructure assets within the alternatives group has grown from about zero, in fact it was zero in 2000 virtually, and it's now roughly 9 or 10% of, of all alternative assets in pension funds. So we're talking about an allocation that was zero in 2000 to infrastructure amongst pension funds, and we're now at somewhere between 1% and 1.5% of all global pension funds. Now, that allocation is quite variable. It's not anywhere close to that in the United States for reasons that are probably not just investment allocation related. They also, I think, access to in, ability to access assets in the United States. And they're much, it's much higher in Europe, and it's much higher in Australia. So it's not smooth across the world, but it is, it, it, it is there and it is present. And I think it's interesting to me that Tiles Watson and their research are identifying it as a separate asset class. It's got at least enough of a status to be so identified, which, and I think it should be. In our own experience, we started off in 2000 managing around about 850 million rand, South African rand, in our, off our infrastructure platforms. We're now managing 20 billion 15 years later. So there's been a decent acknowledgement within our marketplace that there's an opportunity there that makes sense 
to people. That all said, it is a highly specialized investment class. So if you take that Tiles Watson survey and you have a look at the top 100 pension funds, you'll, only find that they, you'll find that they allocate only to six infrastructure, direct infrastructure asset managers. And of those six, Macquarie is just about half of it. The next biggest is infrastructure fund managers, IFM. They're about 12% of the total allocation of infrastructure assets. So you can see it is highly specialized. And perhaps if I can give you a sense of how we see the infrastructure asset management process and give you a little bit of a sense of that, you'll understand why I think it is highly specialized and why I say it is highly specialized. We, we look at infrastructure asset management as a whole life cycle uh, process. We start off by, say, by looking for the actual opportunities. They're few and far between. They're very rare assets, actually. And I can demonstrate that for you. If you we have a total in our, off our platform of only three. We had four, but we've only got three left. Three privately operated toll roads. In this country, there are only three privately operated and owned toll roads. And that's in a 15-year period. There are only two privately operated prisons. There's only really one privately operated gas pipeline. So they're rare assets. And it, it takes our team of people and the people that are involved in this type of management work really, really hard over a really long period of time to try and find these assets to actually make the investments in. So that's the first part of the cycle. The second part of the cycle is that once we've found the assets and once we've got the pipeline and, you know, while we say it's hard to find them, we get a lot of people coming with some crackpot ideas. It takes us a lot of effort to try and judge which are going to make decent investments for us. And we have a team of people spending a lot of time in that period of evaluation. I can tell you, it can take three years on a single asset with two or three people devoted to it. So it's a hard, hard job to do that. The next part of the cycle, which is, to my mind, just as important, is the management of the asset. And I'll give you a sense of, of what's involved in that. Right now, we've got a toll road where we are pursuing the contractor and have been for five years for a 500 million claim. And we're just going to arbitration on it now. And I've been involved in the management of that. Clearly, I'm not going to be sitting in front of the arbitrator. But I've been involved in the management of that process for the last five years directing what's going on through our ownership of that toll road. We have a stake, or had a stake, or do have a stake in a railway company that had the concession to operate in Zambia, the whole of the Zambian railway network. Two and a half years ago, the Zambian government nationalized it. They just walked in one day and said, thanks, we'll take it back. What do we do now? We, we are involved, deeply involved in trying to make sure that our clients' rights to ownership of that asset are protected that we recover as much as we possibly can out of, that, uh, out of that, that, that scenario. Those are the sort of problem things. But there are other things that we do. In every single one of our torrid assets, in one form or another, we've, as equity, gone back to the debt funders and said, hey, guys, you're charging us too much debt for this debt. We need to talk about this. And by doing that, we've managed to lever up the equity returns significantly because we're a small part of that capital structure. So there's a big opportunity. That's a common opportunity 
in the type of space, that, the alternative type of space that we're operating in. But I point it out because it's something that we also do. But the other things that we do, which I think are somewhat unique, is that by getting involved in the remuneration, key performance indicators, active involvement in the management of these businesses, we're able to encourage management and engage with management to find new, innovative ways to actually manage the actual value of that asset, <clears throat> the investment that is an ongoing activity in that asset. So in the N3 toll road, we've used new materials on the surfacing of our road that have been cheaper, longer lasting, and that's part of what, how we've engaged with management to encourage that outcome through the remuneration process. And then finally, and this is the part of the long-term nature of what we're doing, is we need to get to sell these assets on behalf of our clients at some point in time. And we're right now involved and engaged in one of our very early funds, the South African Infrastructure Fund, in putting those assets out into the market, either to find a buyer or to establish the fact that the investors that we have in that fund don't want to sell their assets. But that is our commitment. And so we need to be involved and are involved in the ongoing selling part of the business. In conclusion, uh, I just want to sort of remake a couple of the points that I have made already. What we're looking at in the infrastructure equity space is a vital part of the infrastructure delivery mechanism. And the sooner that really becomes a part of our psyche, the, the better it, it is, I think. These assets are wonderful institutional investments. They really are. Uh, obviously, they come with their constraints, and they need to be seen in the context of their constraints. Uh, the world of institutions globally seems to be realizing this, and, and I, I think will continue to. So we're seeing a weight of a momentum that, that is going forward rather than retreating on it. But it is a specialist area. Uh, it's a skilled investment area, and it's tempting to think it's easy. It's not. It requires active management, and that active management adds value to our clients' investment. I thought it might be a little bit interesting, and I've done this uh, obviously on purpose, but I, I, to, to show you some photographs of some of the renewable energy assets because it's not something that many people know a lot about. So if you'll bear with me, I'll just show you some of the photographs and talk about them a little bit. What we're looking at here is a thing that's called the nacelle. That's the little bit of a block that you see when you're seeing these, these wind towers that sits on top of the tower. That block weighs 40 tons. It sits at 80 meters height. It's that big. You can get inside that block. It's full of equipment. It's the part that generates all of the electricity. And you can stand up and move around right inside of that thing. So the people that are maintaining those, those wind assets get up, in, up that tower 80 meters high and stand upright and move around inside that block. That's a truck that transports one of the blades. Now these blades are enormous. They're so big on the track that on our cookhouse project, you had to have a guy at the back of the trailer radio controlling the back wheels of the trailer so that the truck could go around the corners. If you can picture them, and I'll show you a picture, that's the, that's the blade factory. You can see how long they are. Each one of those blades is half a rugby field long. 
So you can imagine, and, and, and by the way, there are three of them, so it's an equilateral triangle of a 50-meter blade going out in each direction. So they're enormous, enormous pieces of equipment. That's the picture of that cookhouse wind farm, and I'll just show you that because the extent of that farm, it's 60 of those towers, and it extends 20 kilometers in width and about 20 kilometers in depth. So these are enormous, enormous uh, things that we're talking about. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm happy, very happy to take any questions from anyone about anything to do with infrastructure equity. I don't know debt at all. <laughs> yes, they, they are structured. In fact, they, they are similar to private equity, okay, but there are significant differences. So private equity you'll get commitments to a fund. Um, you'll typically draw down one drawdown for an investment in a private equity. Infrastructure, similar idea, but your drawdown for an any single deal is normally phased over the construction period. So unless you're doing a secondary market transaction. Yes, you, well, yes and no. I mean, it depends on the funding structure. They are illiquid investments, so there needs to be some sort of structure around it. The ideas fund that we um, so we've got so again without wanting to punt anything in particular on our platform we've got an open-ended fund and people come in they commit for a period a short period of time and then they're allowed to exit if they need to um, and we have ways of managing that off our aim platform we have closed-ended funds and there you there you are committed for the the fund life but you're not restricted in selling out to someone else you're only restricted for the the commitment period the back. So, Tom, you gave us uh, some examples of toll roads and uh, renewable energy projects. Can you give us an idea of where future projects might come from? Um, yeah, that's an interesting thing. There tends to be a, a cycle in, in infrastructure assets that we've noticed. What you tend to see in the early stages of, of the market of private investment and in infrastructure is that you get uh, power, Big, so base load and renewable energy is the new one, but base load. You tend to get toll roads in the early stages as well, and then telecommunications. Those tend to be the sort of asset classes that, or the asset types that are the early stage ones. Once that market starts to develop, you start to get things like ports and airports and water and um, that sort of thing going in that kind of normal cycle. It's also driven a little bit about need as well. so. Um, I mean, it's obvious why, we, why we've got a big power program going here, isn't it? I, I think that we're going to see a big water program at some point in time. We're an arid country and, and a water poor country, so I'm pretty sure that we're going to see a big water program coming. But you tend to get those sort of cycles. Anyone else? Tom, you mentioned that uh, in the early stages... Sorry, could you grab the uh, mic if you don't mind? And I can hear you. I'm, as you can see, a bit deaf. Sorry, you mentioned in the early stages of the, pro of the project uh, it's where the biggest risk lie. Yeah. Do you use um, insurance products like surety bonds and things like that to mitigate those risks? Um, I need to clarify the point about the early stage risk. It depends on the type of asset. So some assets, 
some infra assets don't have the same level of early stage risk or the same level of risk dissipation. So just let me be clear about that. I was picking on renewable energy. It's a particularly keen example of, of that. Toll roads are a less keen example. But to answer your question directly, no, we don't specifically take commercial risk other than business insurance risk. So business interruption insurance we'll take, and we'll take asset-specific uh, risk, but we don't tend to take insurances out against the commercial investment part of the risk, other than if we're investing off our platform outside of our country of origin of the fund, and there we, there we look to take political risk insurance. It's expensive. Insurance is an expensive thing. It kills your return. You have to be very careful about it. Yeah. Um, the yields from these infrastructure assets has been pretty good, you said. But as more funds come onto the scene and uh, tender for the same projects, uh, what do you see the yields go, doing going forward? That's interesting. The renewable energy program is salutary in this, actually. It's been a very, very, very well-run program. First mover advantage is key. We were lucky uh, in that we were amongst the very first developers of renewable energy um, projects ourselves. So off our investment platform, we actually invested in development companies or invested in development expertise. So we were the first cab off the rank there. We got some great returns out of that. We're finding now it increasingly difficult for us to get our cost of capital to match the investment return on the projects. As you quite rightly point out, other, other entities come in with a lower cost of capital than we've got in our minds and invest in those projects. We have to back away at that point in time and just say, fine, you know, it's not for us. That cost of capital doesn't work for us. We will carry on managing what we've got and we'll move on. For the consumer, that's an absolutely brilliant outcome because what they've got is exactly what you wanted to have happen. Co competition driving the prices down for the consumer. So what we're seeing in the renewable energy program now is what we call grid parity in the wind investments. They're actually coming in and some of them at a cheaper cost per kilowatt hour than you could build a fossil coal-fired power station at. There are issues why you don't want to go there as baseload. So you've seen prices driven down from sort of one and a half to two times in wind, the cost of marginal cost of a new coal-fired power station, to something below that. So exactly what was intended has happened, and it's a great outcome. Anyone else? What do you think is the likelihood of a, of a project coming up in the traditional energy sector? I oh, know they're, the, they're very much on the cards. They, in fact, are getting bids in in July now for coal-fired baseload power stations, and they're huge projects. So you know, when, when I was talking about our wind projects being 100 megawatts, these are a thousand and bigger. So they're huge ones, and they, they're coming in. What do you think is the future of uh, toll roads, given the current public respect? Bleak. What's the alternative? Toll roads. <laughs> it's a very difficult thing. I mean, um, you know, the argument, the argument about toll roads strays into probably the wrong area. It strays into the, affordable, into the affordability area, which is, you know, the p political, it's the easier place to go. This is a corrupt process, you're paying too much, etc., etc. That's the wrong argument. The wrong argument about Torrid should be how do we pay for this? 
we've got to pay for it. Uh, if, if we've got a decent purchasing mechanism that delivers a reasonably, uh, you know, the cheapest outcome, and I believe that's what we had, then the issue is not really what does it cost, because that's what it costs. The issue is how do we pay for it? I'm a firm believer in the user pays. I think it's the fairest principle. I think it's the right principle, and I think it's the sustainable one. I think over time that that argument will be the one that prevails. But there's a whole host of other arguments, and there are lots of smart people advancing those arguments. They're not without merit, so it's going to take a long time for that to prevail. And I think in South Africa now, it's tough to see another toll road being private. It's tough to see another toll road being built let alone one that's going to be privately invested. really is. Tom, and associated to that, the deterioration in the rail network the last two decades, um, do you see that being reversed at some point? Cool. You know, there's a, you know the, again, I, that's a question about, sorry, there's the, so the answer to that question comes in two parts. It should be reversed and the private, private capital should go into it. So the coal link lines, the Richards Bay line, it makes no sense to me as to why those should be owned and run by government. They, they would be absolutely commercially viable railway lines in their own right. The private sector could take over the maintenance of it, take that burden off the budget. So it makes no sense to me. So should it happen, the answer to you is absolutely yes. It shouldn't happen you know, all over, but it should happen selectively. Will it happen is the, the next question. And the answer to that one is there are two reasons why I don't believe it will in the short term. The one is that we don't have a common public policy understanding about what should happen in terms of private investment. So it's a much more reactive than proactive public policy framework. And the second one is I think there's a huge danger that with any of these entities that have massive capital spending programs, that people with their little piggy noses go around saying... That's an interesting place for me not to, not to let any transparency come into. Excellent. Any other questions? Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity to chat to you.